Our sermon text comes from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, continuing to work through a series in the book of Acts, and the next little while we're going to see a bit of a transition in, in the book of Acts. Much focus so far has been on the apostle Peter and his ministry. As we proceed through the book of Acts, it's going to be much more focus on, on Paul and his ministry. We also notice that, uh, especially in the sermon, that there's a shift, too, from, from the church in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch. And so let's hear God's word this morning as we find it in Acts chapter 13, the first three verses. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manane, who who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. After Jesus Christ had confronted Saul on the road to Damascus, you will recall that he was struck with blindness and had spent several days at the house of one Judas in Damascus. Several days later, Ananias, uh, the Lord appeared to Ananias and told Ananias to go to Saul and put his hand on him to restore his sight. In fear of what Saul might do to Ananias, because Ananias knew that Saul was this great persecutor of Christians, he objected and said, no, I I can't do this. The Lord told him and encouraged him, saying, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and And Paul's sight was restored, and he was baptized and accepted into the church. Well, several years have now passed between Saul's blindness and the words of our text this morning. But how those words must have reigned in Saul's ear if Ananias relayed them to him. How he was going to be called to bear Christ's name before the Gentiles. Indeed, he had much training to undergo. He had three years in Arabia and Damascus. But how the Lord must have burdened his heart day in and day out with those words. That Saul is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. We find Saul coming one step closer to the fulfillment of these words in our text this morning. In our text, Saul is commissioned for the mission work of proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. Saul, with the blessing of the church, will be the apostle to the Gentiles. But he's also not to go alone. Luke lists various men, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, and Menaeng, alongside Saul to emphasize that there were multiple godly men in the church at Antioch. These men, from an earthly vantage point, could have, could have fulfilled the call of the Lord to go on missions to the Gentiles. Simon Niger was an African, given his Latin surname meaning black. Lucius of Cyrene was also from Africa. He was from a city in modern-day Libya. 
Menain, whose name means comforter, was notably the foster brother of Herod Agrippa. He had been raised together with Herod and would have known him well when he was alive. He would even have had some political sway given his knowledge of politics and the connections he would naturally have as the foster brother of Herod Agrippa. But Lord did not chose, choose any of these men to go with Saul. Instead, the Lord just chose Barnabas. Barnabas' name means son of encouragement, and what a great encouragement Barnabas would be. Now, we've encountered Barnabas before as we've worked through the book of Acts. He had originally been sent by the Jerusalem church to, to minister in Antioch as a representative of the church in Jerusalem. Reading Acts 11, verse 22, Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. We also know from Acts 4.36 that Barnabas was a Levite of the country of Cyprus. He was previously called Joseph's, but was given that name Barnabas by the apostles. This son of encouragement was a godly and faithful servant of the Lord. He was certainly known for, for being a generous man early in, in the very early days of the church. He, he had a piece of land and sold it and, and gave the proceeds, all the proceeds of that piece of land uh, to, to the church. And we also know that Barnabas was a bold, but also a very welcoming and hospitable man. In Acts 9.22, we are told that when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Barnabas also seemed to appreciate and, and deeply value Saul's work in the ministry. In Acts 11.25, we read, then, then Barnabas, so Barnabas is already at Antioch, but we read, Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was for a full year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. Barnabas and Saul are already working together as a team with Barnabas um, being a uh, that representative from the church of Jerusalem, that son of encouragement. And here in our text, we find that both Barnabas and Saul were appointed to be the missionaries of the Lord to the Gentiles. And they were appointed by God for this task while they were ministering in Antioch. And as we'll see, Antioch was a church that was especially equipped by the Lord for the work of missions. And so let's consider our text this morning, seeing the characteristics of a mission-orientated church, looking specifically at Antioch and, and what our text tells us about Antioch. Now, in Acts, there, there is a distinction between the Antioch church and the Jerusalem church. I'll know that the Jerusalem church was a place that Christ was crucified and resurrection, was resurrected, and it was also the place where the Spirit was poured out on Pentecost. This was where the early church began. It was in Jerusalem. But the Jerusalem church was also heavily persecuted by the Jews. Luke tells us in Acts that it was actually persecution in Jerusalem that caused people to go from Jerusalem to spread the gospel. What a beautiful thing resulted from that scattering 
in persecution. Through, the, through those scattering effects, the gospel had reached the people of the surrounding areas of Judea, Samaria, Ethiopia, Damascus, and even Antioch. And this proclamation of the gospel did not just happen at the hands of, of preachers, but this is often the result of, of ordinary people fleeing persecution and telling their friends and family members of their neighbors and, and co-workers in the villages and towns that they went that Jesus Christ had, had died according to the Scriptures, that he had rose again, and that their sins had been forgiven. So what we see with the church of, of Jerusalem is that it didn't necessarily have strategic intention in going out and witnessing to the nations of the world. But instead, it, it very naturally happened. And as, as persecution was, was brought against the church in Jerusalem, the people departed and, and fulfilled the Great Commission, bringing the gospel into various lands and countries. And so we read in Acts 8.14 that when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. What we see with the churches in Jerusalem is that they respond. They don't necessarily strategically intend to go to a particular spot. and Let's go and do mission work there. Instead, they respond to the mission work that has already happened. That's what happens in Samaria. It's much the same thing with events with Cornelius in Caesarea. In Acts 11, verse 1, we read, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And they proceed to ask questions about what, what that looked like, what, what it meant that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But because, even though, even though there wasn't this strategic intention upon by the Jerusalem church to, to bear witness to all these areas, yet because the gospel is contagious, because the gospel is, is the power of the living God, because God's word is sharp and powerful, so the gospel went forth with power and might. There had been much victory, much fruit borne by the witness of the Jerusalem church. Yet things are, are distinct with the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch seems to have a greater peace from persecution and also a more strategic intentionality with the gospel going out, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. Now, for a bit of a, a geography uh, lesson here, Antioch is a, a city just north of, of Judea. It's in, in modern-day uh, Turkey, located right off of the Mediterranean Sea. So it's, it's sort of sandwiched in between uh, what was you know, formerly the, the nation of Israel and, and the Gentile world, especially the, the Greek-speaking Gentile world. So, so it's very beautifully situated for, for missions to the Gentiles. And... Uh, quite strikingly, Antioch was uh, where the first Gentile church was established. We read in Acts 10, verse 19, these words. Now those who were scattered, those who were scattered from Jerusalem after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. 
That was the, the general practice of, of preaching the gospel simply to the Jews, going first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This was the normal state of affairs after Pentecost and, and before Peter's vision in Acts uh, chapter 10. But there were some exceptions to this, and an exception happened in the case of Antioch. We read in Acts 10, 20 through 21, but some of them, some of these who were scattered uh, uh, by the persecution, were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. From the very beginning of the church at Antioch, is not necessarily focused on the Jewish people, but instead is focused upon these Hellenists. It's focused upon these Gentiles. There was a missionary zeal here, not just for the Jews to be saved, but for the Gentiles to be saved as well. Church in Antioch was started by a zeal for the gospel to go out to the Gentiles. These men from Cyprus and Cyrene may even have been some of the men spoken of in our text. Well, the church in Jerusalem had men go from it boldly, proclaim the gospel. Often did not seem to have the stability due to persecution to intentionally go out to a specific area to witness and, and to establish new, um, new outposts for the gospel of Christ. But Antioch, the place where, where the Christian church was first called Christians, this is the church that God ultimately uses for the gospel to go out into the Gentile world with force. It was perfectly suited for such an end. This church being founded by Gentiles, being a city close to the rest of the Gentile world. There are many different churches in this world. If you just travel around and even just visit now, various Reformed churches, you'll find very quickly that there are churches with different emphases, churches with different contexts, churches with different resources and abilities. This is something we very, very much see in our text. There's, there's a distinction between the church in Jerusalem and the church at Antioch. Yet it would be unfair to call the Jerusalem church to the man and say, why weren't you looking at going out to the Gentiles? Why, why weren't you foremost here in, in doing this? After all, we have to remember that the Jerusalem church had, a, had its very particular context where it was being heavily persecuted by the Jews. And it's ministering to a, a largely Jewish community. It lived in the heart of Judaism. And, and they were rightfully arguing that the types and shadows of the Old Testament are, are done away with for, because they've been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Yet they're being thrown into prison and killed for this proclamation of the gospel. But this is not as happening as much in, uh, this isn't really much of an issue in Antioch. Now that doesn't make the Antioch or Jerusalem church better than the other. Rather, they, they are simply being faithful in their particular context. And so we find that uh, today, too, every specific church needs to understand and know its particular context and, and needs to be faithful in the context that the Lord has placed her. 
The saints here in Oklahoma City as members of the body of Christ, we must be asking, okay, what is our context? What is our calling as a church in Oklahoma City? I submit to you from God's word that our calling specifically as, as a church plant in the RPCNA is to be reaching the lost. Is to be going out and sharing the gospel with those who do not know Christ. We see that both, you know, this is one of the similarities between the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch. They were both at doing this. They did it differently, but they were both reaching the lost, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. One way or the other, the church needs to be discipling the nations, compelling those who are not saved, who are walking in the blindness of their sin, who are marching on the path that leads to eternal destruction, to come through these doors and hear the path of life. Well, not only was, the, uh, was Antioch a Gentile city with a church founded by Gentiles, but it also had some other important qualifications for it to be a mission-centered church. And by mission-centered church, I mean a church that goes and sends missionaries to unreached peoples. And one of those foundations is that it was a church that ministered with godly men, but also had members that ministered. Now, children... You might wonder, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the word minister, but the word minister doesn't just mean, you know, a pastor. It means uh, someone who serves, and that's, and that's one of the reasons why pastors, you know, uh, more, uh, uh, well, at least used to be called more often ministers. It's because they, they served the Lord and, and served the people. Um, it was called a, a minister of, of the gospel, Simply saying, you know, he's serving the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. But if a church is to strategically reach the nations for Christ, it needs to have elders and pastors and a plurality of them. We notice this to be true of the Antioch church. Verse 2 of our text says, And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. Sorry, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Oh, there's a specific meaning to the word ministered in our text. It, this is one of those rare words in the New Testament that only occurs uh, two or three times. And this particular word has the, the idea of a specific public service that is fulfilled by an office. The theological lexicon of the New Testament says that this word means to perform official service for a civic or religious community. It's often used this way frequently in the Septuagint to refer to the work of priests and Levites in the temple. You can think here of, of maybe the public office in the New Testament, of, of pastors or elders or deacons ministry, ministering in their official office. So what, what we're told here. In, in Acts 13 is essentially that there were, there were at least five men publicly serving and ministering in this public capacity. You had essentially five office bearers working in the church. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, Manane, and Saul. 
all these men were ministering. So the church that seeks to be involved in mission work must have both official office bearers and a plurality of office bearers. Men set apart by God and by the church for the work of ministry. Men able to provide for their own needs as well as the needs of others. The church had been, at Antioch had been abundantly blessed with, with resources. They had the financial means to, to go a broader community. You'll recall uh, uh, in previous texts we've considered in Acts that there, there was a church in Antioch that sent, was sending relief to, to the saints in Judea and the famine they were undergoing. So they had, they had those financial resources to be engaged in mission work, but they also had the, those uh, spiritual and human resources of godly men to engage in that work. And we notice here, too, that these godly men are not just servants of the people. Oftentimes, especially in the eyes of the world, the idea quickly becomes that the pastor or the missionary is one who just serves the people. He's there to, to be in the soup kitchen, ministering to the poor. He's involved in, in charity work. And, you know, we see this very often with the idea that uh, so much with, with mission work is that uh, you go on a mission uh, trip and you're, you're building houses. You might not even ever open your Bible, but you're there building houses or, or digging wells or, or whatever. And yet, our text tells us something very different about mission work. Our text says that they ministered to the Lord. One of the primary duties of elders is that they minister to the Lord, that they engage in service to the Lord. Godly elders must be those who are in prayer and in meditation of the Word of God. Now, this has been the case from, from the very beginning in the book of Acts. In Acts 6, verse 2 through 4, we read, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It was that they were wanting to set themselves apart for that ministry directly to the Lord, that service to the Lord of, of prayer and, and meditation upon the Word of God. And this is fundamental to their calling, and, and it even comes out in our text. Uh, we, we read there in, in verse 2, the Holy Spirit says, Now separate to me. Not separate to the people, but separate to me. Separate in service to me, the Lord, Barnabas and Saul. Pastors and elders are separated not ultimately to the people. They're separated to the Lord. Now, this is certainly not to say that pastors do not minister to the people. Pastors must, and I say emphatically, must minister to the congregation. They must be meeting with people, praying with them, reading and applying God's word to their particular context. They must be counseling and, and shepherding the people of God. This is the work of elders. They are to shepherd the flock that God has entrusted them with. It's a horrible reality when there are pastors up in their ivory tower who only leave their office once a week 
to speak from, from their stone-cold pulpits to a congregation they have no intimate knowledge of. These men sadly often love their books more than the sheep Christ has entrusted them with. And, and this is blatantly wrong. Pastors and elders are to know their people and are to minister to them. But an elder's primary responsibility is service to the Lord. If you are an elder or are considering being an elder, this must be foundational in your life. Your life must be characterized by prayer and worship. We know that these men were fasting and praying to the Lord in our text. We read, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. Congregation, as you look for other men to serve as elders, must look for men who minister to the Lord and, and are desirous to grow in this. And as you pray for the gospel to go out to the nations, you must be praying for men who minister to the Lord. Fathers and mothers, be sure you are training your children in the service of the Lord from, from a young age. You never know how God is going to use that instruction to impact the kingdom where you haven't been able to. Consider how the Lord might use even your instruction of your children now to, to be creating future missionaries and evangelists for the kingdom of God. John G. Payton, the missionary to the cannibal of, of the New Hebrides, remarks in his autobiography how his father's prayers impacted him when he was young. He writes, How much my father's prayers at this time impressed me, I can never explain, nor could any stranger understand. And on his knees, and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he poured out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus. As we rose from our knees, I used to look at the light on my father's face and wish I were like him in spirit, hoping that in answer to his prayers, I might be privileged and prepared to carry the blessed gospel to some portion of the heathen world. So fathers and mothers, pray. Pray for your children. Pray for godly men who will not simply serve people, but will serve the Lord, who will minister to the Lord. The church is to grow and spread throughout the world. It must have men who are called by God, who can serve in the offices that Christ has given to his church. These men must minister to the Lord, recognize that that is their primary obligation is service to the God who created them and formed them and saved them, recognizing that they are answerable to him ultimately. They would be men of God, men who are able to be away and, and studying God's word growing more deeply and intimately with the Lord day in and day out. Must have men who, who know God and know His power and His grace upon their lives. Men who, who experientially know 
what it means to battle against sin, know what it means to have, have victory over sin. Men who, who know experientially what it is to, to know that the joy of the Lord is our men the church needs if it is to go into the world. Man who ministers to the Lord will be blessed on the mission field because he's not out there to be pragmatic. He's not out there for his own personal gain. Rather, he's out there for the glory and service of the Lord who redeemed him. This needs to be true of the congregation as well. Mission-orientated church must have members who love to worship the Lord. They are not just, oh, you know, that's, that's uh, the elder's job to pray. That's, that's the elder's job to fast. It's the elder's job to, to be engaged with this. You know, they, are, they are desirous to, to know God for themselves, to worship God as the people of God. It means that they are there on Sunday to gather with the saints. It means that they seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in all the relationships of life. It means that they will diligently read the Bibles, engage in private prayer, keep the Lord's Day, regularly attend the worship services, observe the appointed sacraments, and give to the Lord's work as he shall prosper you. Those are the things included in, in your membership vows. It means you too are desirous to minister and serve the Lord. So a mission-oriented church must have men who minister and members who worship, but must also be a church that submits herself to God. We read in verses 2 and 3, they ministered to the Lord and fasted. The Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And they fasted and prayed and laid hands on them they sent them away. Now what we have here is something that's ceased, in the, uh, ceased since the apostolic era. The Holy Spirit does not directly speak apart from the scriptures of the Old and New Testament anymore. But the principle still applies here just as much as, the, as it did for the early church. That the early church heard the word of God and responded in faith and obedience to that word. As a church grows. It is to hear the word of God and submit herself to it. Churches can do many things for many different reasons. There are sad numbers of churches who submit themselves to their own hearts rather than the will of God. This happens on matters of, of doctrine, on theological issues, on, on uh, the elements of worship, whatever it might be. These churches follow, in a sense, the Disney Channel and its mantra of, of believe in your heart, to do what your heart tells you, follow your dreams. The church that truly grows, desires to, to grow for the glory of God, must have this priority sorted out, that no matter the tide of, of secular culture, no matter the tide of church culture, no matter the tide of family culture, she will submit herself to God's Word. She will make her chief end the glory and majesty of God. And those practices in a church cannot be based on pragmatism. Simply because something works or, or bears fruit or is easy to do does not necessarily mean it should be done. 
Now the question needs to be is, what does God's word say? Do our practices conform to God's word? And isn't it striking that the church in Antioch, a church started by an evangelical fervor to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, doesn't just get up and decide on its own, well, we're we're going to the Gentiles. Instead, they wait upon the will of God. Verse 2 reads, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, this is the Holy Spirit's direction for them to go and, and set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work of ministry in missions. It could have perhaps been easy for the church in Antioch to say, well, well, we, we've got a good church here in, in Antioch. Well, let's go start uh, version 2.0 somewhere else, and, and we'll just keep continuing that pattern. But that's not what they did. Instead, they fasted and prayed and served the Lord and waited on his direction and timing. It would be so easy for us to seek our own will and our own timing, especially with, with things that seem good and right. Well, one of the patterns we're going to see throughout the book of Acts is the church is desirous to follow the Lord's timing. In several chapters, we're going to see that the Lord forbids, prevents Paul from going to a certain area uh, to, to minister there. And, and Paul submits to that. The church submits to God's timing. And this submission often means that we are going to be called to be faithful in small things. We don't know how long they prayed and ministered to the Lord there in Antioch. But there could have been that temptation for them to consider, well, this is just a small thing. I'm just praying and fasting. Think of all the people I can be ministering to in this time that I'm setting aside for, for prayer and fasting. But no, they, they viewed prayer and fasting as, as a, something of fundamental importance to them as a church. That, that prior to them going out and serving in the work of missions, that they are engaging in this very significant work. For a church can think about reaching the nations, it must be sure that it has the foundation of faithful service to God in what we might consider the small things of prayer, of worship to God. We know those aren't small things, those are, are major things. And so often in our mindset we can think, well, this is this isn't really that necessary. You know, prayer, well. I better, I can make better use of my time if I just go out and start evangelizing. Oh, there must be that foundation of prayer. So friends, if you are longing for the nations to hear the gospel of Christ, seek to be faithful in your own lives, in the small things, in your marriages, in, in, in your families, in your personal devotions, in your service of the, of the local body of Christ. You see that the church at Antioch was marked by that obedience. And with that, obe- with that obedience came a continued seeking of the blessing and worship of the Lord. I find it interesting that they did not just hear from the Spirit and, and then act in accordance with it. No, they continued in their posture of, of prayer and fasting. 
as they lay hands on them, they're continuing to pray and fast. They're continuing to, to minister to the Lord in these ways. This demonstrates that their submission was not a, a submission of fear, but it was out of a love for God. They delighted in these things. They delighted in prayer. It wasn't just a means to an end, that then I can get on to, to actual ministry. But no, they delighted in these acts of worship. Because they wanted to know more of their God. They wanted to know Jesus Christ. They wanted to delight in God and worship and serve Him. So in conclusion, as we consider our calling as a church here, as we rightly desire that the gospel goes out, let us seek to emulate some of these principles from our text. Let's recognize our need to minister to the Lord both as, as church members and, and seek church officers to faithfully do this. Let's seek to have a, a love and submission that the early church had for the Lord, where it sought to be faithful in the, in the small yet not so very important elements of, of worship and service to God. These are, are some of the foundational pillars of, of a mission oriented church. May God, by His grace, grant that he would, he would build up such a church here in Oklahoma City, a church that can witness to the nations of the world, a church that can send forth missionaries to those who do not know Christ, that more flags and more outposts uh, of the gospel can be established in this world. Let's pray to that end. Our Father and our God, what... A glorious thing your gospel is. What a glorious message your gospel is. Lord, it's our earnest prayer that more and more people might know this message. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would be equipping your church here in Oklahoma City for that end. That, Lord, we would be building and growing and prospering that we be faithful in the small things, that we might, Lord, minister to the nations of this world, calling them to repentance and faith in Christ. Lord, we pray for churches that are engaged in this work. We pray, Lord, that you be strengthening them in this good work, that you be blessing them with much fruit. Father, we pray for, for missionaries. Lord, we pray as they are often away from family and, and friends out of their own country, and oftentimes even enduring persecution. Father, we pray that you would encourage them in, in those gospel labors. O oh Lord, they would be able to do so with joy, knowing that, that uh, you bless them and, and praise them for that work. Father, we pray that you would, you would bless this church here, and that, Lord, we, you would bless our witness and grow us. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.